Hey guys, it's just a heads up. This is a spoiler-heavy podcast for The Invisible Man. I'll be going into a lot of spoilerific detail. As this is a new release, I just thought I'll give you a bit of a heads up. And yeah, if you haven't seen the film, maybe stay away until you have. And if you have seen the film, enjoy. Thanks, guys. Hello, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Oz Movie Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Today, I'll be reviewing two films. The first is Lee Wanell's The Invisible Man now, this is a film that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. I'm a big Lee Wanell fan. Now, for those who don't know, he was partnered with James Wan in various uh, films during the duration of their careers, the first being um, the first Saw film. Uh, Lee also starred in the first Saw film too. He's the one that is uh, trapped in the room along with uh, Carrie Ulysses' character, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, he's a really good creative force working in Hollywood at the moment. And if you haven't seen his directorial debut, Upgrade, I would highly recommend that one. Um, But yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that film. The second one I'll be talking about is actually a documentary. Now, if you don't know, um, there was a documentary released uh, not that long ago, um, and it was a kickstarted documentary, and it was really something I was looking forward to. It chronicles the... 1980s horror scene um, from start to finish going through every uh, year of the decade and that is In Search of Darkness. Now this was written and directed by David A. Weiner or Weiner, however you say his name, Uh, but David essentially went through and yeah, chronicled every single uh, major horror film that came out in the 1980s, uh, interviewing people who were involved in those films and it was something that I really wanted to take the chance to actually talk about. Now as you know, I'm a huge horror fan in general, but I really love 1980s cinema and I think it's very much an important part of what we have today in cinema. That's why we've had a lot of 1980s nostalgia of recent years anyway. And I guess that's why I want to talk about it. I thought that this film is the perfect opportunity for me to actually go through and explain what I actually like about 1980s horror and go through what I liked about this documentary It really covered a lot of what I love about that decade in particular, but it also gave me some insight into some films that I didn't actually know about and things about films that I hadn't really thought about before too. So I just thought it would be a great opportunity, more of a discussion rather than a review, but also talking about what that documentary did for me and how it enlightened me on certain aspects of it. And it was something I've been looking forward to talking about for quite some time. Uh, There was a back date of actually receiving the copy of this Blu-ray, but I'm so happy I have it now. I uploaded a photo of it when it arrived on Instagram, and it just looks fantastic. It's such a great uh, cover art. I put the cover art as well in this week's cover art for the episode too. But yeah, look forward to that too, guys. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do that. Um, and yeah, look forward to more content coming at you very shortly. But for the meantime, let's get stuck into The Invisible Man. Uh, I am really excited to talk about this film, so let's get into it. Okay. Adrian is sitting in that chair. He's watched your every move. He's followed your every step. Hello? He's closer than you think. What you can't see... Where are you? ...can hurt you. Show yourself! There you are. The Invisible Man. 
The Invisible Man was written and directed by Lee Wanell and stars Elizabeth Moss, um, along with Aldous Hodge, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Michael Dornan, and Storm Reid. When Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was in, uh, in fact a hoax. A series of coincidences turn lethal. Cecilia works to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see and that she is in fact not insane. So let's get something out of the way first. Now that is the elephant in the room, the dark universe. Now, back in 2014, Universal tried to launch a dark universe of sorts. With the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what DC attempted to do as well, I guess Universal looked at what they had on the table and they're like, we don't have any superheroes, do we? No. What do we have? Those dusty 1930s horror monster films like The Wolfman and The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein, Dracula... Let's make a film about the origins of Dracula. So we got Dracula Untold with Luke Evans. Now, full disclosure, I don't hate that film, but I definitely don't love it. And I think part of the reason is because it was trying to start start up something ridiculous. Like if you put the idea of all these superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe working together, it's fine because I guess they're all heroes and them working together, it makes sense. But trying to create a cinematic universe with monster characters just seems absurd. So Dracula Untold flopped, uh, as we all know, and we then got a couple years later The Mummy, Alex Kurtzman's second attempt at launching this dark universe. Now, Alex Kurtzman, I don't like him, full disclosure. I don't know what he is like as a person, but what he has attempted to do in Hollywood is try and create these cinematic universes. He tried it with The Amazing Spider-Man. Him and Robert Orchie, uh, tried with The Amazing Spider-Man. They wanted to launch a Sinister Six and a, uh, I guess, a Spider-Man cinematic universe solely with Spider-Man characters. So they attempted that, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, I say, is one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Sure, Daredevil and Catwoman are terrible, but what Alex Kurtzman did to that film is unforgivable. It is such a mess, and it is so annoying to watch because there is potential there, but it is just so bad. And I guess he then moved from there to... Well, he was working on Star Trek as well with Robert Orsi and J.J. Um, Abrams. I like those Star Trek films. I, I think they're fun. I know that a lot of Star Trek fans have a lot of problems with them and what Kurtzman has done with Star Trek Discovery and the most recent Picard series as well. But I don't really have a problem with it because I, I guess my affiliation with Star Trek, I love original Star Trek. I love Next Gen and I can understand what Kurtzman was trying to go for. He's trying to make something more appealing to the modern ages, which is fair enough because Star Trek original series does not equate to what we come to expect in, I I guess, of science fiction these days. So I can understand what he was trying to do. But then going back to the Dark Universe, what he then attempted to do with The Mummy was to do exactly what Marvel did. We have a Nick Fury character played by Russell Crowe, which is the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde character. And it was just laughable. This idea of this horror film being turned into this action-adventure, superhero-esque film just made no sense. Now, the Mummy films were adventure films, sure, with Brendan Fraser, but they were a lot more self-aware and a lot more enjoyable than what Kurtzman tried to do with, I guess, Tom Cruise in this whole dark universe. 
there was a photo that was released recently after um, with all these actors together and they were all photoshopped together because apparently they weren't in the same room as one another. And it was that they cast all these big stars to play these characters in this uh, dark universe. So we had originally Johnny Depp was playing the Invisible Man and we had Angelina Jolie was going to be the bride of Frankenstein and Javier Bardem was going to be Frankenstein's monster. So we had all these cast members all together. Now, it was up in the air if Dracula Untold would end up being a part of this cinematic universe, but they were unsure. I mean, Luke Evans is a pretty big star, so I reckon it probably would have played out that way, but we'll never know because The Mummy flopped majorly at the box office. So Universal went back to the drawing board, and a lot of people, when The Mummy came out, said, why don't Universal team up with Blumhouse and make a bunch of low-budget monster films? That would actually be a lot of fun. And it turns out they kind of listen to people because that's what they've done here with The Invisible Man. Now, they've completely changed the aspect of The Invisible Man. Instead of being a science experiment gone wrong, now what we have is a, I guess, just a, a real monster, literally, as a person, um, of, of this character who is torturing Elizabeth Moss's Cecilia during the uh, duration of the film and that's the whole premise of it is this this guy is that psychotic that he has turned himself invisible to torture her and it is honestly horrific and I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the film so I guess with all that out of the way we can get stuck into the invisible man um, I love this film I think it was really enjoyable I really liked a lot of what Lee Warnell was able to do with the limited budget that he had during the film um, and I really like some of his ideas. Now, he used some really inventive filmmaking techniques that he put on display in Upgrade when he worked with Blumhouse previously. Now, if you haven't seen Upgrade, I'd highly recommend it. The essential plot of that film was that um, the main character had been in a horrific accident and they'd had enhanced his body so that he was now kind of like a superhuman but it was done in a very low-budget uh, way. It was kind of like Robocop, I guess, without the satire, but it was really well done, and I really enjoyed what with what Lee Wanell was able to do with Upgrade, um, starring Marsh, uh, Logan Marshall Green, um, and I thought he was really good in the film too. But here, um, I, I just really liked what he was able to do. Uh, this is a slightly um, different film in tone to what uh, Wanell has done previously with horror, Insidious Chapter 3 he also directed. Uh, he wrote with James Wan originally as well, and he's been a screenwriter on all four films. But what Wanell did there was it was more of a traditional horror film where this, I suppose, has that science fiction aspect of the film as well. So I really enjoyed that incorporation here. Um, this is a tightly directed and well-crafted movie. The budget of the film was reportedly $9 million US, um, which is quite low. Um, considering the budget of a lot of other films, including The Mummy um, from 2017, which had a reported budget of $120 million. Um, Blumhouse, essentially, what they did here was it, they have what they call a director's model. Now, for those who don't know, um, what Blumhouse do is sign visionary directors, give them a small budget, and then allow them to make the movie they want to so they can see their creative vision from start to finish. And that's what was what's happened here. Wanell worked with Blumhouse, like I said, in 2018 with Upgrade. Uh, he was very inventive and creative with a lot of his filmmaking techniques there. So obviously Blumhouse are like, we like what you do. Do you want to direct an Invisible Man movie? He wrote the script, he directed it, and it's fantastic. Wanell uses that um, same flair here that he used in Upgrade, creating some really tense sequences by having the monster of the film being invisible. 
uh, during the duration. This allows him to create some wonderful tension. There are some great sequences where the camera holds on a chair or the corner of a room uh, with the emphasis being that Adrian, uh, the invisible man, is actually there. And I, I think that worked really well because you're not then looking for something physical in the scene, but you're rather looking for something that isn't there. And it creates some real tension because you think about it, if you're in a situation are you going to be more scared of seeing something that, that is haunting you or something that you actually can't see? And I think the idea of seeing something, uh, not seeing something, I guess the absence of seeing something is a lot more terrifying than what it is um, if you could actually see that physical being. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the film because it does create that psychological tension. Like you're looking around the frame of the shot and you're like, is there something here? And the camera does a lot of panning and it uses the full width of the shot too. So I really like that. A lot of the sequences, um, I guess, I'm going to call it motion um, filmmaking. What happens is Wanell uses the camera to follow a character. So there's a fight scene when Elizabeth Moss is actually fighting um, the Invisible Man uh, during a sequence. And the way that it was shot was that the camera would follow Elizabeth Moss's movement and move with her. And I really enjoyed that because there were these long takes, like really long takes. There was a great one-take sequence of Elizabeth Moss fighting um, the Invisible Man. The scene that's in the trailer where all these guards keep coming and the Invisible Man's just shooting them and killing them. It was really tense, and I really liked the way that that was shot. It was all done in one take. Um, there would have been a cut in there somewhere. There was one that I noticed when they panned outside. There was an obvious cut with the door. Um, but I just really liked that. I really liked those long sequences when they're executed well. And here they were done fantastically. It was quite tense and never scary. I was never scared, but I was definitely tense and on the edge of my seat during the film. And I really enjoyed the way that uh, Wanell was able to do that. And I think that just comes with the craft. It was just a really, really good choice for this type of movie. And I really liked his vision and what he was able to do here. Um the performances. Elizabeth Moss as Cecilia is wonderful. This poor woman is tortured during the entire film. Things just get progressively worse and worse, and of course, no one is believing her. Essentially, Adrian's plan is to make her think she's insane and that everyone around her thinks she is as well. He wanted a baby with her. She didn't want to because he's an abusive asshole. He frames her for the death of his sister, which was one of the most brutal scenes I've seen on a film in ages. Essentially, the setup is that Adrian sends an email to Cecilia's sister wishing her dead. Cecilia then pleads with the sister to come to dinner. Then when they are at dinner, Adrian slits the throat of the sister and places the knife in the hands of Cecilia. It was just brutal. brutal. It was it was awful. Like, I wasn't expecting it because if you've seen the trailer, there is a bit of, of a subversion there because the trailer sequence between the two of them at dinner is just the two of them talking but what happens is that happens and it's just honestly brutal. I just wasn't expecting it. And that added to a lot of the tension as well because you really feel sorry for what was happening to um, to this character, to Cecilia during the film because you really sympathize with her because she's trying to plead with everyone, hey, I'm being tortured at the moment. Can someone help me? But no one believes her because would you believe her? I mean, she's just gone through a traumatic experience with an abusive ex and now what's happening is she's, yeah, being given this awful, awful um, lot of, I guess just a lot has just happened to her during this um, during this time. And I, I guess with everything that's going on, you just really wouldn't believe her during this situation. You would honestly probably think, hey, she's mentally unstable. And 
an invisible guy torturing you. I mean, he's dead. You think he's dead because he staged his own suicide. So, yeah, what would you do? And in that situation, she would be blamed for the murder because it looks like she killed him. And I just thought it was really well done and it really played into the entire film really well. And I I really like that psychological tension uh, and the way that that actually all played into the film. I just thought it was really well done. I also really love the sound design. Now, with sound design in something like this, because you're visually not seeing the Invisible Man, the sound needs to be on point. So there's some great sequences during the duration of the film where you can hear him walking down hallways or you can hear him breathing or you can hear the suit making its mechanical sounds. Um, and I really like that because it really did give the the tension and that feel that what was happening was really... Um, I I guess really happening because it just felt very real. A lot of the sequences, the sound would drain. So then you could actually hear uh, Adrian walking down the house or, you know, um, opening doors and doing things like that. And it's just really creepy. And I really liked the aspect of the film. Um, And I really did enjoy the way that the whole film played out, especially um, with those sequences. Now there's a great sequence early on in the film when, uh, Cecilia is trying to understand what is going on and um, I mean she's in a, an emotional state so you wouldn't really comprehend everything that is going on so uh, she's sharing a room with um, with James who's played by Aldous Hodge um, sharing a room with his daughter uh, Storm Reed's character um, and during that scene there's uh, the bed sheets pulled away essentially and Cecilia's phone's taken and Adrian's taking photos of the two of them sleeping. Um, and it was just really creepy and off-putting. But during that uh, those scenes, there was no sound. And I really enjoyed that because it really added to that tension of the film. It actually kind of reminded me of the better aspects of the Paranormal Activity films. During those sequences when something scary happens with the demon or the ghost... Um, all sound is drained and there's an emphasis on the sounds that you do hear. And I thought that was the case here. So... A lot of the sound is drained, so the the setting is very quiet and very ominous, but you don't have any sound during those sequences, so when you can actually hear footsteps and breathing, it's just really tense and really does create good tension and really good atmosphere as well. So I really enjoyed those sequences, and I thought that the sound design was just done really well and something that I was expecting to be good, but yeah, I, I guess Lee Wanell really understood what needs to happen for this film to be effective. And with those horror sequences, you really do need to um, highlight all, all of that because if you don't, you know, it's not going to work. So I, I think Lee Wanell was the perfect choice in that respect because he really understands what makes a really good film and he really understands how to make tension i guess out of the simplest of settings i mean this film is really bare bones there's not a lot going on in it but in in sense of the actual technical aspects i mean thematically and plot wise there's a lot going on but it was just the way that it was executed i just found it really effective and i really enjoyed the way that lee was able to yeah just create those sequences and create that tension from pretty much nothing and i just thought that was really impressive so I really, my, my hat goes off to Lee Wanell for that because I just thought he did a really, really good job. And I'm glad that Blumhouse gave him the freedom to create the film that he wanted to make. Um, Stefan DeSoyo, De De um, I don't know how to say his name, unfortunately. Um, he uh, is a cinematographer who uh, is actually from Australia as well. So Lee Wanell and him, um, I believe, met at college from what I am made to believe. 
Um, he worked on this film. Now, this is uh, his second film that he's worked on with Lee, um, Upgrade being the first. But I think the two of them really understand each other. A lot of the cinematography in this film is just really well done. The, the shots are lit very well. Um, there's a great sequence. It's in the trailer where Elizabeth Moss um, is standing out on the on the porch and she doesn't know what's going on yet and she's looking around because she thinks something's there and then you see the breath of Adrian behind her, just one breath, and it was just really creepy. Now, the verdict is still out if it is Adrian during the entire film or if it is uh, his brother Tom. Now, at the end of the film, Tom is the one who is actually killed and found in the suit. Um, I believe it was the two of them working together. You didn't find the second suit until later in the film. Um, you are made to believe that um, uh, Adrian was kidnapped because he he staged his own kidnapping, essentially. So when Tom is shot to death and killed, uh, Adrian and uh, Cecilia have a moment at the end where... Cecilia is trying to get him to um, admit that he was behind it all and he doesn't do it. And then uh, Elizabeth Moss, Cecilia, finds the uh, spare suit that she hidden previous in the in the film and um, she kill, kills him, makes it look like a suicide just so that she gets the final laugh, essentially. And I was honestly just that satisfied with that ending because he was just a monster. He was just such a horrible person that to see her looking down on him as he's bleeding to death because it looks like he's killed himself, it just was honestly really satisfying and not in a sick and gratuitous way. It was satisfying in the sense that this poor woman had been tortured the entire film and she hadn't done anything to deserve it. She tried to stand up for herself. She tried to get out of the situation. She did. And then Adrian, uh, you know, fakes his own suicide and then tortures her as an invisible man during the entire film. Now, the idea behind the technology in the film is that uh, he is a, lead, a world leader in um, optics um, and works with optic computers and everything. So the idea, I guess, being um, some really advanced um, work with cameras and everything. So the suit essentially is just reflection of cameras. The cameras make it look like um, the person is invisible, so they're able to cloak him essentially by reflecting the surroundings of that particular area that he is encompassing whilst wearing the suit. So that's the idea behind the technology, and I thought that was really cool and really well done. I really liked that. Um, it was believable enough where I wasn't like, hang on, that technology doesn't doesn't make any sense. I, I wasn't taken out of the film by it. I thought that it really was clever and it was really different to what we've seen before. So I thought that was interesting and I liked that science um, fiction aspect of the film. It added to the horror as well and the tension that was built during the film. But like I said, I really did enjoy that ending, but not in a way, like I said, it wasn't gratuitous. It was just satisfying because Cecilia had been tortured the entire film that for her to be able to... It was really empowering, I suppose, because she was able to stand up to him finally after all this time and she was able to have the last laugh and the final scene of her walking out of the house and just that sense of relief that just comes over her face. It was just really empowering and I really enjoyed that. Um, now, the idea thematically behind the film is that um, poor Cecilia is in an abusive relationship, not only physically but emotionally as well. And he is essentially keeping her captive. Now, thematically, the idea, I guess, is that this, I, I guess there is sort of like a, a feminist um, overtone as well, but I think it's handled in a way that it doesn't feel um, pressing or um, it, it doesn't feel shoehorned in like it did in the Black Christmas film, which I have expressed my hatred for the way that that film handles um, 
the same sort of theme, I guess, of empowering women. But that film does it in such a uh, such a stupid way, and there's no other way of putting it. But that film is just stupid. Um, Blumhouse produced that film as well, but I guess the idea here is that Lee Wanell is just a lot more mature as a filmmaker, and you can really see that because he doesn't try to ham fist these themes and um, these metaphors in more of a, I, I guess, I, I, I don't really know how to put it. Essentially what I'm trying to say is that he doesn't do it in a way that it feels forced at all. It just feels very natural and it doesn't feel like it's being highlighted um, uh, to an emotional effect. Of course it's emotional, but it's not done in such a spotlighty kind of way. It's just done in a way where it just feels natural to the story progression. And I really enjoyed that because I think the idea behind The Invisible Man, I guess, is that emotional abuse in particular isn't something that you can physically see on someone it's something that is hidden and invisible to the naked eye especially for those around so i think that's the idea and the metaphor that is going for this invisible man type story maybe i'm looking too far into it but that's definitely my takeaway from it and i really thought that was clever and i really liked the way that this film updates the idea of the original invisible man now the original monster movies definitely hold a place in my heart, I love those films, but at the same time, I think this is the way that you go forward with these modern retellings of these stories. I don't know if The Bride of Frankenstein will happen, I'm not entirely sure, but I think this is a mature and well-crafted film, and I think if Blumhouse are moving forward with doing more of these 1930s monster films, maybe they do Frankenstein, maybe they do Dracula again, I'm not entirely sure, but I really liked the way that this film was was done, and I thought it was really clever and really well-crafted and really well-acted. Elizabeth Moss was fantastic. I thought Aldous Hodge was also really wonderful as James, the police officer during the film that Cecilia is living with. I thought, uh, yeah, he was fantastic. And Oliver Jackson-Cohen, um, who played Adrian, I thought he was really good too for the brief sequences. We actually do see him. Um, but if you haven't seen The Haunting of Hill House, he plays Luke in The Haunting of Hill House. So it was cool to see him here. Uh, during the film, I was like, I wonder what I've seen him from. And then it just finally clicked to me when I was in the shower this morning. Really weird. But um, I really enjoyed him in the film too for the brief moments that he is on screen. It's a hard role to play and I thought he did a really good job. Um, the Invisible Man is just, yeah, a really well-crafted film. So my verdict, is The Invisible Man is tense, intelligent, and slick. Lee Wanell uses a low budget to create a tense and wonderfully crafted film. Elizabeth Moss is wonderful as Cecilia. You need to see this one on the big screen if you get the chance for just that sound design and the cinematography alone. It was just really beautiful to look at. And I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. Like I said, guys, I really did love this film. I did have one negative with it, and that was the score. I didn't really want to mention it, but the score, um, I'm reluctant to even call it a score. It was a lot of industrialized sounds, and it really deflated a lot of the film for me personally. Um, when silence is used, it's great, but when the score picks up, it can be quite obnoxious. And that was my one uh, detraction from the film, from giving it a perfect score, because otherwise I did love it. But the score really did bug me, especially at the end when it was swelling up. I just really didn't like it. But like I said, guys, this is a really well-crafted film, and I would highly recommend going to see this one on the big screen if you get the chance. It was just a really fun time at the cinemas, and something I wasn't expecting to love as much as what I did, but... At the same time, I'm so happy I got a chance to see it. So definitely check this one out, guys, if you get the chance. I really enjoyed it. 
Alrighty, guys. So that brings that one to a close. So now let's get stuck into something I'm quite excited to talk about, and that is the horror documentary In the Search of Darkness. It's just our survival. That element of the unknown, that sense of mortal fear, is what the quintessence of horror is about. We got special work to do here, you and me. It's unrelenting, the blood in the gore. Horror films are excessive, they're purging. Everybody was trying to outdo each other with the stunts. I will take practical effects any day over CGI. I wanted to be the guy in the monster suit. The makeup artists became one of the stars of the movie. Monsters, vampires. Avocado werewolves. I thought I was making the only werewolf film. Alrighty, so In the Search of Darkness is a kick-started um, documentary by David A. Wiener, who um, I hadn't heard of before, and I hadn't heard of this project until I saw a post on Facebook, and it really caught my eye. Um, I'm a fan of horror in general, but horror movies from the 1980s in particular have a special place in my heart, and I think that's why I was so excited about this project. Um, my girlfriend actually bought me a copy of this one on Blu-ray um, in a collector's edition pack, um, which came with a poster, a pin, um, a little postcard as well. And it's just awesome. It's a, a great uh, thing for horror fans to be able to have their hands on such a unique piece of horror memorabilia. And I suppose it's a great perspective to take as well and see these horror films from a different light. We have... but Signed behind the scenes interviews. Um, we have conversations with people involved in the creation of these projects, and it's just really awesome. It's just such a great, great uh, documentary. So, thank you, David A. Wiener, for putting this out because it is such a great um, project, and I absolutely adored every second of this four and a half hour runtime. So, let's get stuck into it. So, it was written and directed by David A. Wiener, um, and has interviews with the following people. Tom Atkins, Heather Langenkamp, John Carpenter, Doug Bradley, Stuart Gordon, Joe Dante, Larry Cohen, may he rest in peace, Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, Kane Hodder, Keith David, Mick Garris, Tom Holland, not Tom Holland from Spider-Man, Tom Holland, the director of the original Child's Play film, um, and Don Mancini, Bill Mosley, just to name a few. There's so many people um, who have given their thoughts um, and spent some time talking to David A. Wiener and going into depth about horror films, but not only horror films, but horror films from the 1980s, breaking down every single uh, year in the decade and going through films that made that year special and made that year specific. So this is going to be a conversation. This isn't necessarily a review. I just want to talk about 1980s horror and talk about some things I learnt during, the, uh, I suppose, the viewing of this documentary. And... I really wanted to just celebrate the 1980s era of horror and cinema in general because I guess I don't really get the chance to very often. Yes, I've reviewed films from the 1980s, but I suppose because of the vast number of, uh, I guess, content in general that is just bombarding our screens, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong, but there just seems to be something special about that 1980s period. And after each decade, um, they broke down special... Um, elements that make the films as memorable and iconic as what they are, including soundtracks, special effects, 
Um, they talk about nudity there for a while. Um, the female protagonists as well and Scream Queens. And it was just a really interesting documentary. And I really liked the way everything was broken down. So let's get stuck into it. So the general plot or synopsis, it's not a plot. It's just really what the documentary is about. It's an exploration of 1980s horror movies through the perspective of the actors, directors, producers, and FS- FXX um, craftspeople who made them and their impact on contemporary cinema as we see it today. And I think a lot of special effects and makeup design and character designs that came from the 1980s are definitely still felt today. Um, some of my favourite films from the 1980s uh, horror genre, I suppose, The Shining is my favourite of all time, uh, kicking off the decade strong in 1980. Stanley Kubrick really adapted what King wanted to get across on screen, but I think he confined it down so it wasn't as bombastic and, I suppose, large as what King was trying to get across. Now, don't get me wrong, The Shining as a novel is a masterpiece, but I think a lot of that comes with actually reading the book. I think if you're watching something, you need it to be a little more streamlined, and unfortunately, King's adaptation uh, that he, him and Mick Garris actually um, put together for the, in 1990s, um, definitely didn't have that same flair. And I think that was part of the reason I really enjoyed uh, The Shining. I think Stanley Kubrick really understood the source material, but he also understood what to capture in regards to the horror aspect, but also the psychological drama aspect as well of the failings of this family, essentially, and just the breakdown mentally of Jack Torrance. It's such a unique and well-told story. And I think that the film exists separately from what that book does. I I adore both of them, but I think that they need to be looked at through a different lens. And I really do love what Kubrick was able to do with The Shining. Um, Listening to the documentary, um, I heard some comments from a few filmmakers, and uh, one of them being that when um, Kubrick was actually directing the film, he was handed a screenplay from Stephen King, um, an adapted screenplay for the big screen, and essentially... Stanley Kubrick just said, I don't really want to do this and just threw it away and went with his own vision. Now, Mick Garris has some thoughts on it as well, and he doesn't go into too much depth, but Mick Garris says, you know, it's completely different. It's not what was meant to be, um, I I suppose, what, what the interpretation is from the source material. And Mick Garris directing his own version of that in the 90s um, is probably the most faithful adaptation you will see to the source material. But it really doesn't capture, in my opinion, the horror and the dread that is created um, through Kubrick's version in 1980. So if I had to choose a favourite from the 1980s, long story short, The Shining is my favourite film. Um, But that's not to say that there isn't other films that I adore from the decade as well. Uh, John Carpenter was at the heart of his powers in the 80s as well. Uh, He directed fantastic films such as Uh, Prince of Darkness, which is something I haven't talked about yet, but I did buy the Blu-ray not that long ago, a remastered Blu-ray, and it's fantastic. Um, The Fog as well, another film that was remade uh, in the 2000s, in 2006, I believe. Um, But the original is just so creepy and eerie, and some of the effects are a bit cheesy now, but they still do hold up, in my opinion, for what um, they're trying to get across. Christine, I adore. The story about Christine as well is that... Um, before Stephen King had actually published the novel, he had given John Carpenter a manuscript to adapt it. So 
technically the movie was in production before the novel was even released. So that's a really cool little tidbit. So King was a huge fan of Carpenter. Um, and Carpenter actually was meant to direct Firestarter as well. But uh, listening to Carpenter talk about that on the um, documentary was quite amusing too. Essentially what happened was The Thing was a huge box office bomb for Universal Pictures. It was released around, I think, I think it was a month after what E.T. was released. So essentially the movie bombed because audiences were more enamored by this whimsical spirit of the 1980s with E.T. I suppose it was more of a family-orientated pick. Um, and it really did resonate with audiences where the thing was a grotesque alien picture and people just thought, oh, these gross-out special effects, it's not what I want to be watching. Um, so essentially John, they cut to John Carpenter talking about this because one of the um, people says, oh, yeah, and John Carpenter was meant to direct Firestarter and they talk about Firestarter and then it cuts to John Carpenter and he's like, yeah, Universal pretty much fired me from that movie because the thing flopped at the box office. And that just made me laugh because... It was pretty brutal, but you have a look at it now, and The Thing's one of the most uh, influential films, I think, of the 1980s and one of the best films ever made. So it's crazy to see how that film has aged. Obviously, upon release, people thought, no, I don't really like that, so I don't really want to see that. But now people look back at it and think, hang on, The Thing is actually fucking awesome. So it was really cool to listen to some of those tidbits and thoughts um, during that period of time. But John Carpenter had other films like Starman as well. And I think that if I had to choose a director who dominated in that period of time, I think John Carpenter is definitely up there for me. He also criticizes uh, his script that he wrote for Halloween 2. Essentially what happened was uh, after the success of Halloween, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter went into production again on another film but John Carpenter didn't really want to do it. He just thought that the story was done. So he turned out a script that he now criticizes and in the documentary says that it's not my best work. I'm not a big fan of it. I definitely could have done better, but I just had to pump it out essentially. He then talks about Halloween 3, uh, which he worked on with Tom Atkins and listened to Tom Atkins talk about Halloween 3 too. He was quite impressed with the production. Halloween 3 is such a strange project and I think Carpenter's idea behind it is fantastic. The idea essentially was to create an anthology every year. So every year preceding every Halloween, you got a different story. It's not Michael Myers slashing up uh, countless victims. Rather, we get a different story each Halloween. So Season of the Witch was about a commercial um, and these Halloween masks that were on sale and this corporation wanted to take over the world by turning people... Uh, killing people essentially and killing kids during that time um and it was and brainwashing them. it was really bizarre and it's such a great movie but it's one that i think a lot of people don't like because of that it's definitely not a fantastic movie but it has a lot to offer and carpenter's idea was really fresh and i, I really wish he got to see that idea through and they talk about that in the documentary too that if it had been called john carpenter's halloween um, and then every year it was just a different story. It's such a cool prospect, and maybe it could have worked as a TV show. I'm not entirely sure, but definitely in the movie format it didn't work, and people wanted to see Michael Myers slash up people because it was just the age of horror during that time. Carpenter changed the game, but at the same time he wasn't able to change it again, so he created this genre of slasher picks during that time, and unfortunately he just didn't get to see the awakening i guess of that supernatural element until later so we have slasher flicks from the 1980s as well 
uh, in the documentary, the burning is touched on. Now, I have talked about the burning before, but the burning is actually a really good horror film and one of my, I would say one of my favorites from the decade. Um, there are quite a few horror films that came out in the 1980s that followed very similar, I guess, not story structure, but definitely similar themes and settings. I guess the camp scene had been done to death um, by the end of the 1980s, but it's such a cool setting for a horror film. I really like it. It's probably not as prominent now because I guess camps aren't as popular now. That that They're not used as much. So the idea essentially in the burning is uh, that a group of people uh, at a camp witness the burning or the after a prank um, and the seeming death of one of the people. Uh, he was like a gardener maintenance man of the camp. Um, and essentially he's just wreaking havoc on a group of campers who come there the year after. Um, and I really did enjoy the film because it's so it's so over the top um, and Tom Savini's uh, special effects are, are great, fantastic. But it's one of those films that I think, I, I think it probably gets thrown in the heat because a lot of people look at it and think, we've seen this before. Friday the 13th has done this. Sleepaway Camp has done this. Do we really need to see another horror film set at a camp? But I think The Burning offers a lot in terms of the camp and the cheese factor as well as the actual story. Like most of the characters are dicks in it. There's two characters that you actually do end up liking. But I just thought it was really, um, really different. And I think that's why I liked it because Sleepaway Camp is doing something so specific and Friday the 13th as well is banking on the fear of Jason. But the burning doesn't really have that overarching villain as such and I think that's why I enjoyed it as much as I did and why I found it fascinating to watch. So definitely check out The Burning Guys if you haven't. That's another film from the 1980s. 1981, I believe that one came out, but another film that's touched on in this documentary as well. Really disturbing, isn't it? phenomenal every single person on this earth has a little bit of darkness in them i want to have extreme feelings i want to laugh loud and i want to worry and then i want to cry and it's all about the emotion I was a kid in Stranger Things that would hop on my bike with all my friends, ride down to the video store, rent a stack of horror movies. We were all in the moment and making stuff up. I love the magic of the movies. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we take the movies very seriously. Nostalgia is powerful. Guilty pleasure? I'm not guilty about it. <laughs> I don't feel guilty. <laughs> I think it's... So, another film from the 1980s that it's covered in the documentary that I really like... Um, as well is Videodrome. Now, I've talked about Videodrome on the podcast before because I did a review of the Blu-ray release from Cinema Cult, and it's a film that I think upon repeat viewing that you actually appreciate a lot more, and I think because of David Cronenberg's style and his emphasis on those visual effects, the satire and the, the real grit of the story really do hold up, and James Wood's performance is fantastic. Now, I don't love James Woods as a performer and apparently he's a bit of a freak in real life as well and I mean that not in a, a horrible way. He's got some pretty horrible accusations against him at the moment but that aside, his performance here is really, really strong and Cronenberg's work in the 1980s is really up there like what he did with Scanners as well which is covered as well in the documentary but a film that I'm not as familiar with. Of course, I know about The Exploding Head. It's iconic at this point. 
But um, if I had to go through my favorites, Videodrome and The Fly are pretty much neck to neck for me. The Fly I've watched more times and I think because of Seth Grundle's, I guess his character arc and the way that that progresses during the film, it's really bizarre, really off-putting and really disgusting as well. If you haven't seen The Fly, definitely check it out. For Jeff Goldblum, he's phenomenal in that film. But I think Videodrome holds a, a special place in my heart as well because I really like the social commentary as well. And I think because of that social commentary, it's still relevant today. The Fly as well, man, and science, I, I guess that theme is still very prevalent today too. So I really did enjoy that, um, the way that that's played out during um, during the 1980s, and, and especially now, I think The Fly really does still hold strong. And as a remake, it's phenomenal. Now, on a side note, let's get into my favorite decade of the 1980s. So during the 1980s, there were a few decades that I wanted to talk about, but I think if I had to choose my three favorites, we'll start with 1986. So 1986 uh, featured The Fly, which I just previously mentioned, Aliens as well, which isn't covered in the documentary, but Aliens is more of an action film than a horror film, but definitely still has those horror elements there. Uh, Critters as well. I love Critters. It's such an enjoyable film. I own all four of them on DVD. I don't actually own the Blu-ray because it's very expensive. If I ever get a chance to pick it up nice and cheap, I definitely will. Uh, From Beyond as well, which is another fantastic uh, uh, Stuart Gordon project, which I, I adore. April Fool's Day. Night of the Creeps. Night of the Creeps is one of my favorites. I'm hoping to review it uh, this Halloween. I just love Night of the Creeps. It's such an enjoyable film. It is so over the top, so bizarre. I love Tom Atkins in it. He's fantastic. I just really enjoy that premise. It's, it, it essentially has the zombie aspect. It also has the aspect of space, but it also has that sorority aspect as well. So it was just really throwing a lot in there, but it was really enjoyable, and I love Night of the Creeps. Uh, Chopping Mall as well. Chopping Mall's a guilty pleasure for sure because I don't think too many people go to Chopping Mall to really be scared because it's by far probably the least scariest film of this year, but it is still really enjoyable. Uh, Chopping Mall essentially follows a group of people who break into a mall after, after dark and there's a new line of these security robots that are roaming the halls and they've malfunctioned and essentially they're killing people inside the mall so this group of teenagers that broke in just to have sex and have a good time are in for a treat when the robots are chasing them around it's so bizarre so weird but it is really enjoyable and definitely a guilty pleasure of mine stephen king's maximum overdrive um milio estevez in in one of the weirdest films ever made I love the commercial for this. Um, It is so funny. It is such a a weird premise. Essentially, all monsters come to life and it just gets more and more bizarre. And it's just, uh, it's still really enjoyable, don't get me wrong, but it is just one of those things where I just think, what the hell were you thinking Um, during that time? I I, I don't understand. I think this is a, a, a culmination of just Stephen King, cocaine, mixed together, you get maximum overdrive because that's what it feels like and that's what they were saying in the documentary as well. It's just such a bizarre project, but definitely one to check out. Friday the 13th Part 4, Jason Lives. Uh, This is my favorite film in the Friday the 13th uh, collection. I really love Jason Lives. It's over the top, but I think this is where they really understand what 
they needed to do with this franchise. They had a, a continuing character arc as well. It was just really well done. The kills in this one are really re- memorable. And it's just a film that I probably watch more than I should. But I think as a Friday the 13th fan, I think it's probably my favorite film in the in the franchise. The second part aside, because I really do like part two as well. Part uh, three is fine, but part four really does... Um, really does resonate with me in in the sense that I just really enjoyed the story, the -the over-the-top aspect, and the camp factor. And I think that's where they really understood what Friday the 13th was, and I really did enjoy that. Um, Other films include The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. I love The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Toby Hooper uh, recruited Dennis Hopper for this film, and Bill Moseley as well. And listening to Bill Moseley talk about it, um, there was a, a sequence... Uh, that he was talking about filming in the in, in the movie. And Bill Mosley actually got signed on, which I didn't know until watching the documentary, to be in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 from a parody that he did in the 1980s of the first film. Toby Huber watched it, he loved it, and actually hired him from that, which is cool. And Bill Mosley is fantastic. Uh, I love The Devil's Rejects, and I really, really... Um, enjoy House of a Thousand Corpses as well. And like I said last year, Three from Hell was was fine, but I really did enjoy seeing Bill Mosley back in that role too. But uh, Bill Mosley accounts one day on set where he was assaulting one of the characters in the film uh, with a rubber hammer and he was hitting him with a hammer and just kept going. And Toby Hooper kept asking for cut after cut and just kept going. He's like, good work, Bill. Like, do it again, do it again. And then Bill finally asked because he was kind of getting frustrated because he thought, why am I why am I continuing to do this? Like, this is b- bizarre. This is ridiculous. I don't need to keep doing this. And then he asked Toby, just said, Toby, am I doing something wrong? Like, what's the go? And then Toby's like, no, I'm just really enjoying watching you beat this guy with a hammer. It's hilarious. And watching you in character, it's fantastic. So that's pretty funny. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 is so bizarre, but such a really enjoyable film. Uh, the first is a classic for sure, and that's a, a film classic in general. Uh, part two is more of a campy, over-the-top um, 1980s follow-up, and that's what I really enjoy about it. And I would recommend watching it if you haven't. Uh, I picked up a Blu-ray copy of this one from Arrow Video recently. It's a really good-looking Blu-ray with tons of special features, so I can't wait to make my way through them. But, yeah, really enjoyable film for sure. Spookies as well. I did promise a Spookies review at some point during the year. I will get it done, don't you worry. I have my copy of it on Blu-ray. But Spookies is a very strange film. Went through multiple directors. Uh, The studio pretty much cut it during um, when it was finished, trying to make it scary in editing, and it just didn't work. So I'm looking forward to talking about that eventually, but Spookies is another one. Psycho 3 as well, another film I picked up on Blu-ray recently. Psycho 3 is really unique, but it's also a really entertaining film too. Anthony Perkins directed it, and I think when Perkins wanted to bring Psycho into the 1980s, Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 are really underrated sequels. They're really enjoyable, and I think because of the first film and its influence on Hollywood in general, it it is royalty amongst film fans. It, It is one of the best films of all time, and it's hard to then follow it up with sequels that are going to be acknowledged. I think it's like the Godfather effect. Now, Godfather th- Part 3 is no, by no means a classic at all, but it is still an enjoyable conclusion to that trilogy. And I think Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 definitely do offer a lot there, and I think that's part of the problem is because they are relatively good sequel follow-ups, and I think it was the appropriate action in the 1980s to move these characters forward. But it was just a hard transition period in general in Hollywood. And I think 
Perkins struggled to bring that forward and trying to get it to catch on as well in Hollywood. But they are definitely worth your time. I love Psycho 2 and Psycho 3. I own both of them on Blu-ray and, yeah, would definitely recommend you check them out. Poltergeist 2 as well, The Other Side, uh, came out in 86. Uh, I haven't actually seen this film in quite some time. I'm a huge Poltergeist fan. It's a film that's very hard to get on Blu-ray and that's one thing I'm trying to do at the moment. But definitely um, a, a great film from that time period as well. But essentially, that is the nineteen um, that that is nineteen eighty six, and nineteen eighty six is just a really it was just a really enjoyable um, period in Hollywood. Another year I wanted to talk about though was nineteen eighty five. Now, nineteen eighty five saw Reanimator, Stuart Gordon's fantastic Reanimator, a film that I adore. Um, I love Stuart Gordon, but Reanimator is fantastic. Bride of Reanimator and um, Beyond Reanimator as well. The the two sequels as are really enjoyable too. I own all of them on Blu-ray um, by Umbrella Entertainment. Fantastic releases. Uh, the Return of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead, two films as well that are quite entertaining. Silver Bullets, based on the Stephen King novella, um, is really entertaining too. Cat's Eye, it's it's okay. <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street too. Um, I, to be honest, I don't love A Nightmare on Elm Street too, but it is still entertaining. Life Force. Life Force is fantastic, a Toby Hooper film that is often forgotten, I think, because of the influence that he had with other films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist. But definitely um, check out Life Force if you haven't. Um, Pretty much these aliens come and suck the life force out of people. It's a really entertaining film, more of a science fiction horror, but definitely a a good horror. Uh, The Howling 2, I don't love The Howling 2. Um, Fright Night, I love Fright Night I've reviewed Fright Night, check out my review if you haven't, um, Fright Night's one of my favourite horror films in general of all time I love the remake too, both really enjoyable films um, and yeah, I adore Fright Night if I had to choose a favourite from 85 it would definitely be um, Fright Night uh, Ghoulies, I've reviewed Ghoulies as well I love Ghoulies, Empire Pictures classic, it's just fantastic it's really entertaining uh, Night Train to Terror as well never seen it i was going to pick it up um when they had their sale at the end of last year for uh vinegar syndrome who are like a cult classic uh b movie uh studio releases over in america and they did a a fantastic black friday sale but unfortunately i didn't pick it up because i didn't know enough about it um but that's pretty much 85 85 is a bit of a lull year but there's still a lot there and i did enjoy it um for sure um other films include the mutilator Blood Cuts, Nail Gun Massacre, um, Blood Tracks, I don't know what that is, but apparently it's on there, Um, and quite a few other films too. So that is um, is 1985. Now we'll get into 1987. This is probably my favourite year, um, if I had to choose a favourite year. It just has classic after classic in the horror genre. We have Hellraiser. Clive Barker's Hellraiser is one of the most iconic films from the 1980s. I don't really love the sequels. Uh, the second one's okay, Hellbound. I don't mind it, but the other Hellraiser films aren't fantastic, but I love Clive Barker's original. It's such a unique vision and such a unique character as well, and it was interesting to hear from Pinhead himself during the documentary. I really liked that perspective taken. The Lost Boys, The Lost Boys is fantastic. It is such an enjoyable, such a 1980s movie too. It's the pinnacle of the 1980s. I love Lost Boys. Uh, Evil Dead 2... Near Dark, uh, Prince of Darkness, uh, Evil Dead 2 as well, guys. I will review that one eventually because you know how much I love Evil Dead. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors is my favourite Nightmare on Elm Street film, and I think a lot of people share that sentiment. It's such an enjoyable, more of a family-orientated 
Nightmare on Elm Street film. By family orientated, I mean it's more of like that family horror aspect, kind of like Poltergeist as well. A bit more gory than Poltergeist, but definitely has that feel to it. The Howling 3, the Australian Howling film, as a lot of people know it as. Um, yeah, just some fantastic films. Blood Diner as well. Blood Diner is one I'm waiting to pick up on Blu-ray. If you have seen Slaughterhouse too, Slaughterhouse is quite enjoyable. Uh, Jaws the Revenge, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. There's so many films that came out in 1987. The Stepfather as well, which is now a classic. Stepfather 2 is pretty good too. Um, but there's so many films that came out in this period of time that were just so enjoyable and um, a lot of them people haven't seen yet. So listen to what I'm saying, guys. Take your notes and watch some of these films because they actually are so enjoyable. Um, but if I had to choose a favourite from 87, it would probably be Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors followed closely by Hellraiser. Um, Evil Dead 2 is iconic and Probably that that Evil Dead Two is my favorite, but it's hard to include it amongst those because Evil Dead Two just feels like it is so much better than every other film that is is classified in that genre. So, yeah, I, I love Evil Dead Two. But like I said, guys, I will do reviews of these films as well as we head into um, Halloween season again this year. I'm looking to do more and more horror films, especially from earlier decades. A film I still didn't mention was My Bloody Valentine, came out in 1981. One of my favorite uh, horror films of all time as well, uh, The Fun House, which I've re- uh, reviewed. But I've actually spoken to the writer of Fun House as well, Larry Block. I was hoping Larry would show up on this documentary, but he didn't. But uh, I love Larry Block as well, and I'm hoping to do an interview with him to discuss some of the things that uh, definitely inspired him, but also um, inspired a generation after him too, because The Fun House is such a unique and uh, definitely an enjoyable horror film too. But yeah, guys, that that is a breakdown of some of my favorite years during the decade. So let's get back into talking a few more horror films before we wrap this one up. Great. We have such sights to show you. Alrighty, guys. So other movies that are discussed in this documentary include films that I adore, like the original Howling from Joe Dante. Joe Dante talks about his opinions on the Howling sequels too, which was quite um, quite funny to listen to. Um, if you haven't seen The Howling, it is such a unique way to film a werewolf film. Now, during the 1980s, there were quite a few werewolf films. I mentioned Near Dark before, the Catherine Bigelow classic. Near Dark is a fantastic film. Um, and The Howling definitely stands amongst a lot of them just because of the influence it had, I think, to inspire a lot of filmmakers after it. Now, John Landis's uh, American Werewolf in London is probably the best werewolf movie from the 1980s. Uh, Silver Bullet, Team Wolf, like, they're enjoyable, don't get me wrong, but I feel if you had to choose a 1980s Werewolf film, if I was to take one away, I think I would take The Howling away because I think it's the most enjoyable to rewatch. It has that charm of that low-budget B-movie sensibility like The Evil Dead, really. And I think Joe Dante was able to do something really unique with the budget that he had. Um, his opinions on the sequels were quite funny. Like I said, he's not a fan of them. He doesn't really understand them. But it, it, it is that influence as well because essentially every studio was trying to find the next Halloween during that period of time. So they were trying so many different things. 
The Howling used that slasher aspect of the genre to really bring the werewolf to life. And I really did enjoy The Howling for what it was able to do and the influence it had on Hollywood at the same time. And American Werewolf in London is probably the most quotable and most watchable, I suppose, and not the most rewatchable in my opinion. Like I said, I would rather watch The Howling, but American Werewolf in London is one that I know a lot more people are aware of because it is the quintessential werewolf film from the 1980s, um, if you were to speak to anyone else. But in my opinion, The Howling is a little better. Uh, like I said, though, Near Dark is fantastic as well. But yeah, The, the Howling sequels are the most bizarre thing. I'm actually looking forward to receiving... Uh, copies of them from Umbrella Entertainment, hopefully in April, where I'll be able to discuss. Uh, I want to go into a bit of detail reviewing them eventually, and I would love to do the whole series. So that's why I've requested um, The Howling 3, 4, and 5, I believe, are the ones that I'll be receiving. So I'm looking forward to that because I do own Howling 1, and I don't own Howling 2. I'm trying to find it on Blu-ray, but it's quite hard. Um, But yeah, uh, definitely an interesting slice of the 1980s for sure. Um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much it guys in search of darkness is such a unique film. And I, I really loved the detail and the depth and the thought and the care, just the love in general for 1980s horror. They deal with so much and they go through so many films and it's so enjoyable to listen to my favorite films. Some of my favorite films of all time being broken down and talked about, uh, listening to John Carpenter um, and Keith David talk about They Live as well. Keith David talks about the care that uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper had for him um, when they were uh, filming the the iconic fight scene that goes for like 10 minutes. It goes for ages, but it's so entertaining to watch. And Keith David says that he never felt safer than when he was fighting Rowdy Roddy Piper. And that was really entertaining because They Live is another film that I adore from the 1980s as well. Um but yeah, it's just that thought and care that went into our listening to Caroline Williams talk as well about um, about I, I guess her her overview in general. I actually really appreciated her opinion. She had a lot to say and she was really well spoken regarding issues with nineteen eighties horror, um, such as the nudity aspect. That was interesting to listen to some of the screen queens from the from the period, including Barbara Crampton, who took a top off a fair few times in films, but. Um, she was talking about how it felt necessary for the story, but she said if she hadn't known the impact that it would have had, would have she done it? Did she see it as too gratuitous? Uh, Caroline Williams says that a lot of the time it was empowering and she felt empowered from doing it. Um, and then we had other opinions as well where people just said it's disgusting and it felt like there was a huge divide between males and females during that period of time. Heather Langenkamp talks about how the screen queens during that time were really... Um, I guess, pivotal and monumental for the actual movement of female characters in cinema because you have a look. A lot of the time, yes, there's nudity during the film and it came from the fact that there were a lot of male filmmakers from the 1980s and boobs were a selling point. But Heather Langenkamp points out that not every character did that and some of the characters that are in those films definitely held their own and ended up being the main characters and fighting the bad guys during those films, Friday the 13th Part 3 is a classic example. We also have um, Nancy from the Nightmare on Elm Street films as well. And you have Jamie Lee Curtis in her various horror films from the 1980s, including Road... Um, oh, I forget the name of the film now. Oh, my God. I was going to say Roadhouse, but it definitely isn't Roadhouse. 
Road Games, Road Games with Stanley Keach, and um, also The Fog, Halloween. It's, it's so many films, and it's so iconic at this stage. I mean, have a look at um, uh, Ripley from Alien as well and what Sigourney Weaver was able to do there. Like, it just created a whole different conversation with some of these characters. And, yes, there was nudity during that time, but I think what Caroline Williams says, uh, it, that sexual uh, sexuality over men during that period of time, it was more of a power stance, and it was really powerful if you look at it from that perspective and I suppose the perspective it's shot at is definitely from that male perspective because they were the butts that they wanted to get into seats during that time for sure but during I guess in a retrospective aspect as well you look back at it now and you think hang on that is a really good point because they use their sexuality to really get what they want from the male characters during a lot of the film and they have that power over them and it is quite powerful if you were to look at it that way Again, some of it's gratuitous and I guess like films like Slumber Party Massacre and, and things like that, it's definitely gratuity, but I really did enjoy that perspective and that opinion because it's something that I personally hadn't thought about during, um, I, I guess, whilst watching those films and I, I think having that perspective really did open my eyes there, so that was really important as well and I really enjoyed those opinions on that matter. It was really powerful and really well done. So The Verdict... In Search of Darkness is the definitive guide to 1980s horror with interviews, conversations and insight into some of the best horror films of all time. I love this documentary and it most certainly gets a 10 out of 10. So this week's home media release of the week is brought to you by Cinemacult or Shock Entertainment and it is Terry Gilliam's adaptation of Hunter S. Thompson's classic source material Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas starring Johnny Depp and Benzio del Toro. Um, This is a film that I've always admired and I did request this one from Cinemacult because it has been quite some time since I've watched it and when I saw that they had the rights to this release here in Australia I thought... It's about time I check this one out again because it has been quite some time since I've watched it. And it still holds up. It's still one of the best films from the 90s. It's Johnny Depp at the height of his powers. He's out of his mind on drugs and it is fantastic to watch. It is so funny. Um, And it's darkly witty as well, which I enjoy. But I just really love um, this film and I always have. I, I love Terry Gilliam's vision. His vision is always very strange and very weird, but I've always admired what he's able to do with certain visual techniques that he uses. Here he uses some great visuals, and I think he's the perfect director of filming a a drug-addled trip. I I think he's fantastic for that, Um, and I really love what he was able to do here. He also gets the best out of Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp in the 90s was fantastic. That's probably my favourite era of Johnny Depp. Yes, he did some pretty entertaining things in the 2000s, but I think he got into that Jack Sparrow shtick there for a while, and I think it was hard for him to break out of it, where in the 90s, he still had the reins on him a bit. Directors were able to pull him into line and say, don't go too over the top. We want you to be crazy, but we also want you a little, I guess, reserved as well. Uh, Other films, I guess, where Johnny Depp was able to really explore his acting prowess was Donnie Brasco, and I think that's probably the most iconic from the period. I really love Blow as well, but Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is my favourite. I love What's Eating Gilbert Grape as well, but that's not really a Johnny Depp performance. That's him really acting, where I guess if I was to categorise a Johnny Depp performance, I would say he's over the top, he's weird, 
but he's also really energetic and charismatic, and I think that's where Depp shines. And I think this is the perfect film to really highlight his acting ability in that sense. Donnie Brasco for a more serious performance, but I really love what he did here in um, in this classic, and I would call this a classic. Terry Gilliam, like I said, his visual style is always fantastic, and it's really interesting to see it play out on screen. I absolutely adore um, Brazil. I think Brazil's a fantastic movie, but I, I just really liked what he was able to do here, and I, I think it really does play into what... I guess Terry Gilliam's all about, and that is that visual style and that visual sense. He really understands, I guess, the unique things to do with a camera to highlight certain things. You're filming a guy, well, two guys, on a trip to Las Vegas out of their mind on drugs, and that is the best way to film it. And I think he does some really interesting things with the camera. I really love um, the way that he directs Depp, like I said, he still has the reins on him, so he's not, you know, Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean 46. He's much more mundane, and he does go over the top, don't get me wrong, but I've always just adored what he was able to do here. So I'll read what it says on the back here. Buy the ticket, take the ride. When a writing assignment lends journalist Raoul Duke, played by Johnny Depp, and sidekick Dr. Gonzo, played by Benicio Del Toro, in Las Vegas, they decide to make it the ultimate business trip. But before long, business is forgotten and trip has become the key word. Fueled by a suitcase of full of mind-bending um, pharmaceuticals, Duke and Gonzo set off on a fast and furious ride through non-stop neon surreal surroundings and a crew of the craziest characters ever, including cameo appearances by Cameron Diaz, Christina Ritchie, Gary Busey, and many others. But no matter where misadventure leads them, Duke and Gonzo discover they... That sometimes going far is the only way to go. Like I said, guys, this is one of the best films from the 90s. It's always on my list of my favorite films of the 90s. I'm really happy I finally have it on Blu-ray here. Um, Bonus features on this Blu-ray include deleted scenes and spotlight on location, uh, the filming of that beautiful um, Nevada setting and... Um, I guess, the, like it mentions on the back, the neon fueled setting as well. Like I said, Gillian's colours are just fantastic in this film. He really directs such a beautiful-looking film. Um, and I just really love what Gillian was able to do here. And I always have adored Hunter S. Thompson's storytelling. The Rum Diary is an interesting one too. I don't love that film, and I've had my gripes with re-watching that film, especially because of the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp relationship too that spawned from that movie. Um, but it just doesn't capture the same as what this film was able to capture. And I don't know if it's because of the director. I feel like it is because Terry Gilliam is such a visionary. But Johnny Depp as well in 2000 and... I think it was 2000 and... I'm going to say 2011 is when The Rum Diary came out. And when that film came out, it just didn't feel the same. It was 2011 because it was the same year that Rango came out. And the funny thing in Rango is there's a, a great cameo by Johnny Depp's Duke character in that when Rango um, falls off the uh, falls off the back of the car and he lands on the windscreen and Duke um, says, oh, it's a lizard or something, and he, he uses the windshield wipers to get him off. Um, it was a great little cameo because I feel like Gore Verbinski in Rango really took some notes out of the visual style that Gilliam used in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for Rango. And Rango is one of my favourite animated films of all time. I haven't talked a lot about Rango before, but it's one I would love to get into because Depp's actually starred in two of my favourite um, animated films of all time, Corpse Bride and Rango, on a little side note. But Gore Verbinski definitely took some inspiration from 
uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Rango. You can definitely see that with that visual prowess, and I really love that film. Um, and I love the little nod there to Hunter S. Thompson in particular, and I love um, Depp's performance as Duke. Like I said, it's one of my favourites um, of the 90s, and this is one of my favourite films of the 90s. So as a film, I'm going to give Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas a 10 out of 10. It's one of the best, guys. It really is. I, I, I absolutely adore this film. And as a Blu-ray, it definitely gets a 9 out of 10 for me. I would have liked a few more bonus features. I know with the Arrow video release of this one, there are quite a few special features that aren't included here on this Blu-ray. But at the same time, guys, this is the only way you can watch this one in Australia. So for what we've got, I think it's a really good release. And I love what Cinema Cult do with their releases. This is a really good-looking film. The transfer is pretty good. Uh, Cinema Cult do have some issues sometimes with some of the transfer. And I have noted as of recently, um, a few of their more more recent releases have looked quite good. Um, and this is definitely one of them. This is actually one of their older releases. It came out in 2013. So um, definitely check this one out, guys. I'll leave a link down below for you to pick this one up from Shock Entertainment's website. Um, and I'll have some more Cinema Cult titles actually to review in the next couple of weeks. Um, Cinema Cult are releasing... Uh, the Machinist for the first time on Blu-ray, which is awesome. I can't wait to see that one. Um, I'm being sent a copy of it this week. Uh, and Dazed and Confused, one of my favourite um, high school films of all time. I love that film. I already own it on Blu-ray, but just to hear Matthew McConaughey say he's classic, all right, all right, all right, and some of his lines during that film, one of my favourites, as creepy and as weird as it is, is where he says the... Um, uh, my, the thing I love about high school girls is that I, I get older and they stay the same age. It's so creepy in retrospect, but at the time, it's just so funny coming from Matthew McConaughey's mouth. It's just, uh, it's hilarious. And I love him in that film. He's definitely the highlight for me. And I think it's one of his more iconic performances because it was one of his first. Um, if not his first, I actually believe it was his first. So I look forward to those reviews coming soon because I will be doing a bit of a spotlight on Cinema Cult in the next couple of weeks to highlight some of their releases, as well as Umbrella Entertainment, who have sent me copies of Beyond Reanimator and Bride of Reanimator, which I'm looking forward to talking about, as well as their new release of The Haunting, um, which is the adaptation of the original Haunting of Hill House um, novel, but it's in the film form with Liam Neeson. Uh, who else is in that movie? Owen Wilson shows up for a bit. We also have Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's such a bad movie, but I am looking forward to revisiting it because it has been some time since I've actually seen it, as well as Drive-In Delirium, Dead by Dawn, which is the trailer collection of horror films from the 70s and 80s, a lot of Grindhouse, so I'm really looking forward to checking out that one as well. I love the Drive-In Delirium collection, so look forward to reviews of those titles coming very shortly as well. But, guys, that brings this episode to a close, so thank you very much for listening. I don't really have a lot to talk about outside of movie reviews at the moment. Um, there's not a lot of news uh, heading this way, I guess. James Bond is really long. I guess we've got that to look forward to. Um, but as far as actual movie releases from March, like there isn't a great deal coming out. I'll probably check out Bloodshot um, because I'm looking forward to seeing Vin Diesel hammered up. I always am keen to see him do that. Um, and A Quiet Place too. They're the only two really on my radar at the moment. Um, February was a bit of a dull month for me. I do apologize. I didn't see a great deal of new releases. Um, Birds of Prey, as you know, I just didn't care enough to go and see that film. Sonic the Hedgehog. I did want to see it when I heard that it had decent reviews, but 
I actually did want to see it regardless because I was hoping that they kept that original terrible design because I think it would have made the movie 10 times funnier. Um, but I didn't get a chance to see those ones. And Bad Boys for Life escaped me back in January. So I'm a bit behind with some of those releases, but I will be playing a bit of catch-up. I will find ways to watch these films for you guys. And I do want to check out other releases like Gretel and Hansel, which I haven't had a chance to see yet. I'm also looking forward to uh, a few other releases too that have come out in the States, but we haven't got them as of yet. Uh, Color Out of Space is one I want to check out. Guns Akimbo is coming out soon too. Um, so look forward to reviews coming out soon, guys. I'm not entirely sure what next week's episode will be about. There's a few releases that I definitely want to check out, but it's whether or not I get around to checking them out, I guess. Um, but yeah, that brings this episode to a close. So subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. If you're new as well, thank you for listening. Check out uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I've left a link down below to pick it up. The Invisible Man was great, and if you have a chance to see In Search of Darkness, definitely check it out. It's very hard to obtain. I realized that after I posted um, my photo of my copy, I heard a few comments saying, how the hell did you get that? It's like 500 bucks on eBay, and I was like, holy crap, that's right, because it was a limited release, and I was lucky enough to get it for Christmas. But um, yeah, if you can find it, cool. If you can't, then you're really missing out because it is such a good documentary absolutely adored it um but yeah guys uh, check out those films if you haven't and yeah until next time peace out